What's going on, millionaires? You're listening to the Million Dollar Mind Podcast, episode 181 on multifamily real estate, funding, and collaboration. Now, you guys know we have had a ton of different content episodes, conversations, about real estate, funding, how to get into real estate, so many different ways to get into this massive industry and the importance of getting into the industry. So that's why I'm super excited to have this conversation. We have Vina Jetty in the building and Vina is um, uh, an entrepreneur, real estate investor, all of the above. She has over $1 billion in real estate assets over her career. She's a philanthropist serving and giving to several nonprofit organizations, and is the founding partner of Vi Funds, a commercial real estate firm that curates conservative opportunities for investors. So I'm super excited just to talk about that venture, Vina. And um, before we dive into today's content, you know, if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about you, how you got started in real estate, and most importantly, what they can expect from today's conversation. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm Vina Jetty. Like you said, I'm based out of Dallas, Texas, and I run a company called Buy Funds. We're a large multifamily owner operator with a focus on class B value add assets. And typically our buy box is 200 units and up, 75 million or above on purchase price. Uh, so we have like a very narrow buy box that we work within. Uh, as far as how I got started, um, so I kind of started, I, I had a little bit of a head start, I would say, because my family is actually a real estate family. So I had an opportunity to see real estate as the foundation of my family's portfolio and wealth growing up. Now, we certainly didn't have money growing up. You know, I'm the daughter of two immigrants. My parents built everything from the ground up. And uh, I'm actually the first in my family to invest in multifamily assets. Mm. Uh, but my parents did residential and they did it at scale. Uh, now they're both retired and fully invested into our multifamily assets. But uh, I come from a real estate family. I went, I graduated from college when I was 20 with my degree in finance from the University of Illinois. And then I ended up uh, going to work in corporate real estate. And I worked for somebody else for a while and realized that, wait a second, this isn't the best use of my time or my skill set and uh, left corporate America ultimately started investing for myself and my family, and then um, just continue to scale up from there. Now I've transacted on over $800 million in multifamily assets since leaving corporate America. Awesome. Awesome. I, I love to hear it. And I'm, I'm really excited to just dive into your personal transition from, you know, coming from a family in real estate, them having most of their experience in single family to yeah. transitioning to multifamily as you know, it, you know, can be very similar, but very different at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, before we get into that, Vina, welcome. I'm super excited to have you on the show to our millionaires that are tuning in for the first time. Excited to have you on, to, you know, on the show and joining us and to our vets that tune in every single week, you know, Monday and Friday. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mind podcast. This is the number one podcast in the world for passion attraction. And you are in the right place if you are here looking for money-making tips and tricks to just live a more passionate life. And uh, Vina, let, let's let's dive right in, right? So you said your family started off in the single family real estate, and you are more so focused in multifamily. Mm -hmm. uh, from your experience, what kind of guided you down that path to multifamily instead of more so 
you know, following the path of single family and want to kind of transition into that route? I actually did start by acquiring single family homes in our own portfolio because it was what I knew. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was comfortable. It was something I was familiar with. And so I did start there. But what I quick, very quickly realized was that's not the way to scale. You cannot get to the same portfolio size doing it one home at a time, you know, say for the Blackstones of the world that buy 40,000 homes at a time. But for us, you know, we it was just not possible even do I was my busiest week. I think I was buying like five a week and mm. it's still, it wasn't enough scale for me to justify the cost of, you know, having somebody work for me full-time or managing the assets full-time. And I really disliked the property management side of the business. So I needed to get to scale quickly. And that's where multifamily really stood out. And then also multifamily allows you to finance it easier. It's less risky than single family assets. It's not quite as volatile. So I liked all those things because I'm a conservative investor by nature. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And so with, with a couple keywords, you said, you know, it's, it's less risky, easier to get funding for definitely less volatile for yeah. our listeners that are tuning in and really just kind of catching went to multifamily for the first time. Mm-hmm. What about multifamily real estate makes it less risky, um, less volatile in the market, and maybe even in some cases less competitive when it comes to purchasing and finding these properties in in a market like today? I don't think it's less competitive. (laughs) I think you're just competing against more sophisticated buyers the larger you go. Um, You know, maybe you're not competing against someone who's going to grossly overpay for an asset like they might in single family, but you're competing with very sophisticated and very um, sticky and aggressive dollars at the level we transact at. So I don't think it's less competitive. It's just different competition. Mm -hmm. As far as risk goes, uh, one, your vacancy risk is much lower. So if you have a single family home, your tenant moves out, you have 100% vacancy. If you have 100 units and one person moves out, no big deal. If you're 100% occupied, you go down to 99%. If you're 95% occupied, you go down to 94%. Not a big deal. You're not really going to feel the pain at the bottom line. Um, So that's one reason I think it's less risky. It's a more stabilized asset class as well. It's less volatile because the valuation is done based on the business of the asset. On true multifamily, it's valued based on the net operating income and the cap rate and market value is derived from both of those two numbers. Whereas on a single family home, if your neighbor down the street sells their house for a 30% discount, they've totally screwed your comps for your single family home. Multifamily does not operate that way. It's based on the business of the asset, which means also it's easier to get funding for. So it's much easier to finance multifamily assets because, I mean, they are looking at Vina Jetty as a borrower, but not just Vina Jetty as a borrower. They're looking at one, two, three main street apartments. What can these apartments do? Are we going to be able to pay it back? Is it going to be operational? Is there risk there? So getting funding for multifamily assets is actually a lot of times much easier. Mm, okay. Now I know that when, when it comes to running the numbers, it definitely uh, can be much easier uh, from my experience, the more experience you have, right? In multifamily mm-hmm. and purchasing yeah. these types of properties. For someone that has never invested in the real estate before, or might only have, you know, one or two single family properties, you know, what are some things that they should now put their focus on as they want to transition into multifamily real estate? 
Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head is understanding the numbers and getting comfortable with how these deals operate, how property management works. Um, and like you said, it does experience does matter. And so I always like to encourage people to find partners that are complementary to their skill set that can help them um, transact on larger deals and take it down together or find a seasoned partner who, you know, I, and I hate to say it this way, but sometimes you just have to pay them just to give you their name and their resume and their balance sheet so that you can go and do all of the sweat equity. And, you know, I always tell new investors, even if you make $0, it's okay because that first deal is so important to being able to open the door to all the other deals. So it's a long-term vision, a long-term goal. Don't focus on just that one deal. Mm, that, that's a, I like that you mentioned like the word partnering up and collaboration and as, as that's one of the the topics for today uh collaborative efforts and you even mentioned how you dislike you know the property management side of things yes. so what are some creative ways you know as a as a new investor whether you have all the funds and don't want to do the work or have no funds and willing to do all of the work what are some creative ways to kind of negotiate terms or, you know, partner up with people to, you know, make this dream come true. Cause I know a lot of people, I know specifically for me to get into real estate, I had to go the wholesaling route. Yeah. Um, and I know that's a route that a lot of people, you know, uh, that I know have to take just to kind of get their foot in the doors. But if there's another way, you know, whether it's wholesaling, you know, efforts <laughs> as opposed to contracts, uh, what are some creative ways that you kind of see in your industry that people can, you know, merge together and join forces? Yeah, so for multifamily investors, a lot of our investors start off as LPs or limited partners in our deals. So they might not go out and find a deal, but they might say, hey, Vina, I love this project you're working on. Um, you know, like I said, we transact 75 million and up is kind of our buy box. And so they might say, hey, I really like this. I can't give you a check for $30 million or whatever that number is, which most people can't. Um, but they might say, hey, let me put 100K or 50K into this deal. Let me see how it works from the limited partner perspective. And that's usually like the first step is most investors that end up going off on their own start investing with somebody, whether it's myself or another sponsor. The second thing or like that next kind of growth step that we usually see is um, what we call a fund manager. So a lot of times they will run a fund to fund model under our parent fund and, you know, it's all SEC compliant and, you know, we send you to our securities attorney, we get them to file all like form D, form ID, we do everything by the book. Um, and so we encourage fund managers who want to maybe bring capital or manage an asset or not op operate a fund uh, to come and bring their fund and invest it into our fund. And then they're not doing the heavy lifting of asset operations, managing the property managers or the initial or the due diligence or initial acquisition under underwriting that portion of it, because we're set up to do that. So a lot of times that's how they'll integrate with us. And then usually after they've done that a few times, we usually end up seeing investors that go out and um, get their own deal under contract. And, you know, sometimes they'll bring it to us and ask us to partner on it. Uh, sometimes they don't need us. So it just really depends. We will, you know, a lot of times if we have that deep of a relationship, we'll look at, you know, giving risk capital to new investors or um, KPing or guaranteeing the loan for them. So there's a lot of different ways that you can utilize partnerships. It just depends what you really need and what your interests are. Mm, okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And as far as 
you know, getting the funding um, as an individual, do you think that it's more important, you know, not having the experience, of course, is it more important to try to get that funding as an individual or as maybe an LLC or, or a business? As a business, um, you could get it as an individual, but most banks at truly like on multifamily, which means five units or above, especially as you get into larger and larger multifamily assets, most of them are going to ask that you have some kind of an entity set up um, and they'll usually, your lender will usually dictate the structure. Mm, okay. All right. Now I do want to hear about your journey into starting Vive Funds. What was the, what was the, the motivation to starting Vive Funds and what were some of like the challenges you faced earlier on when, when with starting it? Oh gosh, we don't have enough time to go through all of the challenges I face. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really wanted to. I'm I'm a mother to twin toddler daughters, and I really wanted my girls to know that they can be in the private equity space, and they too can, you know, they don't have to choose between a career or a family. They can have both. Um, so that's really important to me, and that's why I do what I do primarily. It's not. I mean, the money is nice, but it's not so much the money as it is the legacy that I'm leaving behind for them. Uh, as far as challenges go, man, there are so many. Um, I think one of the biggest things, if I could go back and tell me starting a company, any company, um, if I could go back and give myself like solid advice on what I would do differently, it's easily that I would invest time and effort and energy into setting up systems and processes early on. Uh, it's not, and it's hard because sometimes you just don't know that you need a system for something or a process for something. And then it becomes this whole struggle of, okay, well, I don't want to put in the time to establish the process, but if we put in the time to establish the process, it would make everything else so much faster and more efficient. But then it's like, okay, but I don't want to dedicate that time because I just want to get everything done. And it's just this never ending cycle. Um, so I think when we have taken the time to invest in processes, systems, automation, it's actually served us really well in the long run. It allows us to scale from one deal to the next or be more efficient, or more importantly, give our investors, our passive investors, a better user experience. Um, we are investor obsessed. And so everything we do, every decision we make is how does it affect the LPs or their experience or their returns? And then we make decisions based on that at every single turn from top to bottom in the company. Mm. Now, are you finding the are you finding the deals and the equity for these investors, or is it primarily just the deals or primarily just the equity? Uh, both. We do everything. We're A to Z operational. Uh, we do have a JV partner that we work with, so we kind of try to divide and conquer. Uh, so we are between both the teams. We handle everything from sourcing the deal, underwriting it, negotiating it, stacking the capital, signing the debt. Um, doing due diligence, raising the equity, filing, you know, all the securities requirements, et cetera, distributing, operating, executing, and then exiting. So everything from the moment a deal comes across our desk till the moment we exit, we handle in-house. Mm. Now that sounds like A to Z operations. All I hear is a lot of moving parts, a lot of yeah. people. Yes. Um, when you first got started out, did you have all the people in place? How did you identify what people you needed in place? No, we did not have all the people in place. We still don't have all the people in place that we actually need. Um, you know, finding the right fit for the companies that we work, we have are 
it's challenging because we believe very strongly in a company culture. We don't like turnover. We want to make sure everybody that's here feels valued and appreciated and has the ability to bring ideas to the table. We believe diversity is our strength. Uh, we do focus a lot on hiring diverse teams across the asset and our companies. Um, so, it, you know, it's challenging sometimes to find the right fit for what we're looking for. And, you know, it's always that struggle and any entrepreneur will tell you this is by the time you have the cash ready and you need to hire an employee, it's like so far late that you're scrambling to find someone. But before that, it's the question of, should I be, is it responsible for me to bring on an employee because they're relying on me to pay their bills and their rent. And that's not something that I take lightly. That's a responsibility. And, you know, it, and it's the flip side, it's being an entrepreneur. Yes, we can do really well, but when things aren't going well, I'm also the first to take a pay cut because I want to make sure that our employees are taken care of first. So um, no, we do not have our teams in place. I, because we're growing so fast, we can't keep up with the amount of growth we're experiencing. We're constantly bringing new team members onto the team. When I started, it was just me. It, there was no one else. Um, and that was challenging, but I did what I had mentioned earlier, where I took on just one slice of the deal. I wasn't A to Z operational. By the time we moved to A to Z operational, we had started adding team members and partners on board. Mm, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And one word that I want to hone in on that you mentioned, Vina, is the word diversity. Mm -hmm. And uh, just naturally, especially in the environment that we're in, I think when people hear the word diversity, they're thinking that diversity and how people look and the cultures in which they come from. But um, I even think that you meant a little bit deeper and correct me if I'm wrong, a diversity in mindset and uh, I, I, you know, ideology as well, like making sure that people have different experiences so that they can bring, you know, different ideas and concepts to the table as well. Is that kind of what you meant by, you know, diversity? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially being having diversity from, you know, race, religion, ethnicity, background, experience standpoint, that automatically translates to that diversity in mindset and thought process. And that's actually what we're after. We're not, I, you know, I'm not trying to hire someone just because they're a woman or they're a minority or they're from an underrepresented community. I think that's great. And I think when we have the opportunity to create equity at the top, that's always preferable. But what happens, and we found this in our company, is that when we have people that are from different backgrounds than you know myself or the partners of the company, what happens is we start to see those different experiences and those different thoughts and ideas come to the surface, which is why we also have an open door policy. Anybody in our company, all the way from the lowest paid employee to the top paid employees, everybody can bring ideas to the table and we won't reject them just because of where it came from. We actually will look at it. And if it's something that we can implement, we absolutely will. We are open to where a great idea might come from. And it might be just a blind spot for us, right? Like, I don't know what men in this business are thinking. I don't know what their experience is. I can't possibly know personally. So it's a blind spot for me, right? And so I think, or non-moms, right? Like, cause now I'm a mom and that's how I see my lenses through that. So I think having different backgrounds, experiences helps us to be able to contribute better ideas or different ideas or new ideas. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe even avoid certain problems too. That absolutely you know, with, with having like a blind spot driving a car, you can avoid you know hitting mm-hmm. another car by switching lanes and switching gears and maybe yeah. pivoting a couple times. Um, that that's interesting. And I want to switch gears just a little bit, Vina, because right now we are in a an an a very volatile time in real estate mm-hmm. and a, a time that is paralyzing a lot of people from making any decisions, yeah. especially in uh, the residential side of things where, where most of my experience <laughs> comes from your experience. How do you see that? Is it at all affecting multifamily and commercial real estate as well? And, yeah. and in what ways? Uh, many ways. I think, you know, interest rate risk is a big issue. Um, we cannot leverage deals as high as we used to. So no deals are underwriting. Our cash on cash is getting murdered out of the gate. There's no cash on cash on 99% of the deals we're underwriting. We're looking for a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as competition goes, it's still fairly competitive. I don't think that we've really seen less competition on pricing as much. We've maybe seen more softening of terms, if you will, of the deal. Uh, Maybe instead of having like 35 offers, we're competing against seven or 12. Um, So, you know, a little less competition in that way. And cap rates are, you know, somewhat correlated, like 60, 70% correlated to interest rates. So as interest rates have gone up, we have seen cap rates expand very, very minimally though, because our markets that we transact in and the assets we transact on are highly stabilized, like institutional quality assets. So we don't expect to see a whole lot of movement on cap rates. We don't expect them to go from three and a half to four and a half percent overnight. Over the course of like five, seven years, maybe uh, historically, they typically don't move that much in our markets on our assets. Anything is possible. But that's where I think being savvy and knowledgeable helps you because you can make those assumptions and you can protect for that as you go into the project. Mm, okay. So the markets that um you guys primarily focus on are are they like like the the Atlantas, the Houston's, the you know, these major uh metropolis type cities, or are yeah. they kind of up and coming cities? No, we are like you said, we're in Atlanta. Um, we've bought and sold about 350 million there in the last 18 months or so, 20 months or so. Uh actively looking at several acquisitions there at the moment. Uh, North Carolina is another market we play in. We actually don't do the Houston market as of right now. Um, you know, it's just, it's not really in our risk profile, but we do Dallas, Austin, mm-hmm. San Antonio, uh, Jacksonville, Tampa, Orlando, the North Carolina, South Carolina, Research Triangle of North Carolina. Uh, Phoenix is another market we look at. And there's a few other markets that we're actually looking at bringing online. So we typically will study a market and underwrite it for 12 to 24 months before we actually bring it online. So we have a couple that have been, we've been looking at them and we've been evaluating them and we may bring them online for either the end of this year or early next year. Okay. That makes sense. So I take it with people migrating heavily from the North to the South and the major development of these multi-use facilities, like the restaurant slash residential areas for you, you would say that this is still a very good time to invest in multifamily real estate. I think every time is a good time to invest in multifamily. (laughs) I, you know, I get this question a lot. Are you, Mm -hmm. are you still investing or do you invest in a down market? I mean, yeah, because if I don't, I'm not investing 50% of the time I'm in business. That's 
way too much for me to not be investing in. It's anybody's guess when we're at the top or bottom of a market. Instead, what has to happen, what I think seasoned investors do is they invest, but their strategy changes, their underwriting metrics change, their assumptions change. And I think that is reasonable, but to not invest because of where we think we are in the market would, I mean, if you thought three years ago, we were at the top of the market, you would have missed out on a ton of money in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I was, uh, I get that question asked a lot too. And I wanted to hear your, uh, your take on it because at the end of the day, I feel like waiting, you, you end up losing out either on the increase of interest rates or you lose out right. on the equity from rising prices. So exactly. either way, you just want to kind of get in where you fit in and, you know, just minimize your risk where you can. Exactly. Mitigate the risk that you perceive at that point and for the near future. But you can't just stop investing because you think you might be at the top or bottom or middle of a cycle. Mm-hmm. So what methods have worked for you? Because it, it sounds like with all with mitigating risk, all of this, you have to just be savvy with the numbers mm-hmm. um, where where you kind of started out. What were some methods that helped you just understand and not overcomplicate underwriting <laughs> just being able to find deals and things like that? I don't know that we don't overcomplicate underwriting. Uh, we are pretty thorough, pretty in depth when we do underwrite our deals. Uh, And I will say we are more conservative than most sponsors. So take everything I say with like a massive teaspoonful of salt, because I, we just, we got to a point where now every single time we send our underwriting to our lender, who is by nature, the most conservative in the deal, they're rejecting it back to us saying, no, this is way too conservative. Go make it more aggressive and come back to us. Like our lender is telling us to be more aggressive. (laughs) And like, I know that's crazy, but that's just how the nature of how we think. And, you know, a big piece of that is because my co-sponsor, her family and my family, we invest into our deals alongside of our investors. We're oftentimes our own largest investors in our deals. And that means that we have a lot at stake, not just reputational risk, but we have dollars in the game too. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is, you know, sometimes we get into this whole bout of, okay, but that let's just see if we take the NOI only up by 3% in year one. Okay. Only 5%, only 10%, but we'll also stress test it backward too. So we'll say, okay, what if NOI doesn't change? What if we cannot be better operators? What if it stays the exact same? How does this affect investors? What what levers do we have to pull if our investors are starting to get affected? Can we put more capital in ourselves? Can we reduce our fees? Can we waive our fees? So all of those things are conversations we're constantly having if things are not going according to plan. Now, when you underwrite that conservatively, the nice thing that happens is usually you're making a phone call saying, hey, by the way, we totally knocked it out of the park. I know we said we were going to give you 15%, but here's 47% or whatever that looks like. Right. And so, uh, you know, last month, last month we exited a deal. We held it for 18 months and our investors made 1.8 X their money back in 18 and a half months. And of course I didn't tell them I was going to pretty much double their money in the course of 18 months, but I, you know, we told them we're going to get you anywhere from 14 to 16% a year is what you're looking at. And then we totally crushed it for them. And that's how we continue to grow our capital side because our investors 
know that we are working hard for them, that we've made reasonable or conservative assumptions, and that if something is going wrong, it's not because we just didn't pay attention. It's because something is really going wrong that's out of our control. Mm -hmm. Now, did you, in, in that case, because that's an amazing uh, success story, mm -hmm. in that case, did you mean to under-promise and over-deliver or it just kind of happened that way? No, I always mean to under-promise and over-deliver. <laughs> now, when I say that, usually I think I'm like, all right, we said 14 to 16%. Maybe we'll get them to like 16, 17, 18% would be great. But I, I mean, I didn't know we were going <laughs> to, I don't know, we were going to give them a 50% annualized return. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. Congrats on that deal. Thank you. Um, where, where do you think most of the negotiations in multifamily happen? Is it still with like the seller as the buyer? Or is it are you negotiating with the lenders, project managers? Where are most of your negotiations happening? everybody everywhere um because that's how you maximize investor dollars is mm -hmm. i'm negotiating with the seller to make sure that we're getting the best purchase price uh best terms on our it's not just the purchase price that matters there's a lot of other costs that go into closing but also just the structure of the deal we want to make sure we're planning against risk for our investors like for example let's say there is a I don't know, an earthquake and one of the buildings is no longer inhabitable and gets condemned. What happens then? Do we still have to close? Do we not close? What are what are our damages? How much can we reduce the purchase price by? Uh, are they going to assign us insurance benefits? So there's a lot that goes into just something as simple as negotiating the contract. With the lender, we use the same lender over and over. So we use uh, Melissa Quinn. At, I don't know if you know her, but she's based in Orlando. She's from Jane's... Uh, Jones Lang and LaSalle, JLL. Um, she's phenomenal. I trust her to close any and every deal. She gives us the best pricing possible. She's just, we've been working with her for years. Um, I don't know that we so much negotiate with her as she goes and negotiates on our behalf. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as vendors go, you know, we're always looking at pricing. We're always looking at the scale we have. We're always looking at the business as a whole to see where we can either increase our dollars to the property or decrease our expenses. Uh, what I think new sponsors should remember is it's one thing to push rents or push income. There's only so far you can do that, right? And then people just can't afford it anymore, which, okay. But for every dollar you increase your income, that's only going to be like maybe 60, 70 cents to your bottom line because you have expenses against that dollar. Mm. But if you cut costs and save a dollar on the expense side, that's a full dollar that goes to your bottom line. So new operators, a lot of times will forget that, you know, sometimes it's more efficient to cut costs than it is to increase your income so it's kind of finding that balance and that blend of both right that that actually makes a lot of sense because of course if you want the max rents then you have to put in the best finishings you have to yeah. you know make it aesthetically pleasing for someone to want to pay that max rent which increases your expenses like yeah. you said where on the flip side you can just focus on where can you cut the cost to just right. keep as much money that makes a lot of sense i'm glad that you shared that vena because uh we we get a lot of uh, multifamily investors, we get a lot of single family duplex investors mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I feel like the message may be, you know, do the finishings to get the best rent. And you kind of given us a different perspective, which is always good to have multiple perspectives. Um, what baby steps can our audience just, you know, listening to this conversation so far, what baby steps can they take to, you know, get started at least, 
you know, familiarize themselves with multifamily real estate? I mean, I think first and foremost, it's listening to podcasts like this, right? I'm sure you can binge all 180 something episodes and there will be several multifamily investors that you've spoken with. Um, you know, I speak on a lot of these podcasts. There's a lot of them. I also like reading articles um, just so you know what's happening in the time. But the one thing I tell anybody listening, right, if a free and actionable step that you can take is go to different sponsors, find like 10 or 20 or 100 sponsors that you think you may like to work with them or invest with them and sign up on their portal, sign up on their list because it's free to do that. And all of us will send you our documents and we will send you our offerings. And what's important about that is not that, oh, okay, now I've seen Vina's offerings. I want to invest with her. That's not why you do it. You do it because, okay, I like what Vina's doing. I see how she's looking at this. I see how she's thinking about this. I see where the market is trending based on the emails I'm getting from these five sponsors. And then it gives you one, something to emulate. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Mm -hmm. um, and two, and more importantly, these are the people that you want to partner with. These are the people that you might want to buy from or sell to. Um, so I would say, you know, this is a relationship business. Foster those relationships. Start off by signing up in those portals, getting to know what different sponsors are doing, what their strategy is. And, you know, I always tell even new investors when they call me, they're like, oh, I'm so excited. I want to put... $300,000 into your deal. I'm like, okay, well, hang on. What are your goals? Are we aligned? Am I the right? I might not be the right sponsor for you. There's many times where I tell investors no, because I don't think that they're a good fit for our fund. I think they have expectations that are not in line with the true risk profile. You know, I'll never give them financial advice. I'm not licensed to do that, but I do want it to be a thoughtful decision. I want them to review it. I want them to take time with their attorneys, their financial advisors, their CPAs, whoever they need um, to make a good decision for their portfolio and their personal finance goals. Mm, that's that's great advice. I, I, I love that advice. And um, to even add on that, you, you mentioned emulate, you know, you get some type of you know, template, you know, when you're finally at that level, you have something to kind of go off of, but also you're getting like research, <laughs> you're getting, you know, notes, things that you can, exactly. you know, copy and paste and, you know, import and download into your own mind. Uh, Vina, would you say that that is the advice that you would, you know, also give to your high income earners that are looking and ready to invest? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason you can't have multiple sponsors lists that you're on. Um, you know, and I'll tell you too, this is something even at today, as much as I've transacted on multifamily, I still, I sign up on other multifamily sponsors because I invest into other deals. So uh, I'm always looking at other deals so that we can invest into those deals for our, our personal portfolio. But I sign up on lists of people that are not even in this field, or they maybe are in a different field of real estate where I just see what they're doing and I want to know how do you do it? And I want to take the best parts of their business and their practices and emulate it in mind because I want to be better at what I do. And it doesn't mean that it has to come from another multifamily sponsor. Uh, you know, for example, I don't know if you know Pace Morby, he runs the sub two community and he's got a massive following and he, his base is just so loyal and so wide and 
he has built a phenomenal, successful business and he makes everybody feel like truly part of that community. And he builds that really like strong emotional connection. And I don't know how he's scaled to the size he's scaled over the last few years, but I'm on all of his lists. If he tells us like, Hey, I'm running this challenge. I'm signing up for it. Not because I'm trying to learn how to do sub two deals. Like I don't, I'm not going to buy single family homes. It's just not in my bandwidth or the cards for me, but it's more because I want to know all of the intangibles of that. You know, I want to know how are you talking to your uh, community? How are you interacting with them? How are you building your brand? How are you, what are you using to build your social media presence? So like all of those things are things that I'm looking at, even if I'm not looking at the content of the real estate side. So Mm. I think any potential investor should be looking to do that. Mm. I I like how similar that advice was to advice we've gotten last week, Vina. And it was regarding something totally different. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) Yeah. One of our guests was saying that he'll sign up for, um, like a conference or he'll sign up for a networking event and don't even know what the content is, right? He just signs up just to be in the room. Yes. Right? Even if it costs, it may cost 5,000, may cost 10,000. He'll sign up just to be in the room. And you're pretty much saying like, it doesn't matter the content you're doing it. One for the reps, uh, two for, you know, the intangible information, the how to's, the outside of the box information, because uh, the information all changes, but sometimes the strategies stay the same. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the same thing I say about like these masterminds and these groups and stuff like that. You're not paying to understand what an IRR is or a cash on cash means, right? Like you can Google that. You can Mm -hmm. find that. You don't need a mastermind to tell you that. The power of a community is you're getting everybody else's mindset. You're getting everybody else's experience. And more importantly, you're getting proximity to the person that you want to be transacting with, or you want to transact in the way they're transacting. And that's the power of those communities. It took me a really long time to realize that because I was resistant to joining any of these until recently. And then I was like, oh, I get it. I'm not trying to learn what Pace is teaching in his course. I'm trying to learn how Pace thinks. And I'm trying to be the person that when I pick up the phone and call him, he answers my call. Like that's what I'm trying to get out of it. Mm. Great, great takeaways, great takeaways. What do you, so what do you think that knowing what you, what you know now, mm-hmm. what would you have done or how would you have moved differently um, in one, uh, the multifamily real estate space, but also in starting Vive funds? Mm-hmm. So in starting Vive, it's the same thing I said earlier. I would put, I would have spent a lot more time, money, energy, effort into putting processes and systems in place. Mm-hmm. It would have saved me so much heartache and so much time later on down the road. Um, I also would have looked at partnerships, um, not just in my core business, but in ancillary businesses. I would have looked at looked for partnerships where there can be an operational partner and I would have let them run with it. I wish I had started doing that sooner. I do that now, but I wish I had done that years ago. Um, so that's on the buy side. From the multifamily side, oh man, I you know, the thing I say to everybody is something that I did do. And I think it served me really well is understanding the numbers. Everything's going to stop and start there. If you understand your numbers, you can raise your capital. You can target appropriate deals. You can operate deals. So understanding the numbers is kind of the basis. Um, Like I said, my degree was in finance. So I kind of had like that baseline financial understanding, but there are 
so many websites and so many videos and so many podcasts that go into depth about underwriting. Great, great answer. That that's that's a that's an amazing answer. And as we are uh, transitioning, Vina, I, I one want to say thank you for just the insight that you're giving us into our millionaires and just how to think outside the box when it comes to this multifamily. We talk a lot about single family, so this is a different yeah. type of conversation. Yeah. Uh, not just for me, but for our millionaires that are tuning in as well. Um, just a few more zeros on it. <laughs> just a few more zeros, a few more units and doors. No big. A couple, not that many. Let's <laughs> see. So, with, with this, uh, one being a passion podcast, we're 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 solely, you know, because it, it's it's great having the vehicle, great having the engine that is going to fuel the life that you want. But it's most important that you know we find different things that we're passionate about first and that we can develop a love for. Um, so where in what you do now, did you find your passion and what kind of drives and excites you the most? So I, my mom will tell you, I am somebody that when I put my mind to something, like I just do it. So she'll always be like, oh, well, when Vina has a bee in her bonnet, she'll make sure it gets done. Um, and, you know, I didn't set out to build this company. I didn't know I was going to build this company. I started doing it. You know, it was fun. I liked it. But then as I really narrowed and focused in on what I loved to do and started investing time and dollars into building the company that I wanted, it became something that I just, I can't, I don't want to stop. I, you know, I'm young. If I stop now, I don't know what I'm going to do all day long. I mean, my kids are going to go to school soon. They're eventually going to get to an age where they, I'm not that cool anymore. Right now I'm cool. So they still want to hang out with me, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they're, they're going to get to an age where they're not going to want to hang out with me. They're going to hang out with their friends and I don't blame them. I want them to go out into the world. And so when that happens, I want to make sure that I have something that is equally exciting for me to do. And, you know, I just, I, I love what I do and I want to keep doing this. And so that's why I keep doing it. And I think too, the other thing is um, there's not a lot of women or minorities represented in the private equity space that transact on the size of deals that we transact on. And for me, it's really important that, you know, my girls and other girls have little girls have someone that they can look up to and see and, you know, that, representation is important to me. And if I don't do it, then my kids won't know that they can do this. Mm, that's amazing. That That's amazing. And I, I'm so glad to, to just have someone like you on the show that can, you know, speak to the people that may identify with you that, you know, up until now, didn't think there was anybody in that space yeah. and probably didn't even know anything about the space or could see that for themselves. But up until this conversation now, we're thinking, well, I, I want to get into that now too. So yeah. uh, big ups to you, Vina, and much appreciation that, you know, to have you on the show. And uh, before we wrap things up, we do have a, a segment that I like to call rapid fire. Uh, that I like to have with all of our guests and it's, uh, <laughs> okay. it's just five random questions that have nothing to do with real estate multifamily okay. or anything we talked Let's about so it. it's just to have fun lighten up the mood and to uh get you to open up but most importantly to have fun be brief be brilliant right. and answer with the first thing that comes to mind okay let's do it I'm ready all Should right, I look the first one. do I need to like 
Yeah, you go ahead and stretch it out. Stretch okay. out the kinks. Okay. This first one might be easy to answer, though. This one is uh, if you had to teach a class on one thing, oh. what would you teach? Okay. I mean, I think that that's obvious from actually, I'll make it more specific than just like real estate or multifamily. Mm -hmm. I really love the investor relations side of the business. So I would actually teach like on how we handle investor relations and raising capital on the equity side. I like that. That's very specific and niche down. Yes. Yes. Awesome. That's my favorite part of the business. Relationships. Cause that's yeah. really what it all boils down to yeah. anyway. Exactly. Awesome. Number two, what's one bad habit that you're trying to get rid of? Oh gosh. I have so many bad habits. Um, which one, which one do I confess to online? <laughs> um, I, so I was in the habit of going to my Pilates class every day, five days a week. And then I started traveling and I started, um, I got sick. Like we had like the flu and it was just all crazy. And so I got out of that habit. So I guess it's a good habit that I'm trying to reestablish. And, oh, I, my confession is I really, I do love junk food, like fast food, Taco Bell. Like if you put it in front of me, I'm going to eat it. And so <laughs> I have like a really bad sweet tooth and I like fast food. So I'm going to break that habit. Like my birthday is in a couple of weeks. That is my plan for my next year. To break, to, to get rid of junk food? Get rid of junk food and in, go back to my working out routine. Mm, so no cheat days after after your birthday no cheat days what do you mean I don't like to call it, <laughs> I don't want to be like that strict about it but maybe just like maybe I go to 50 percent of how often I'm willing to eat junk food gotcha okay I love it well happy early birthday Vina. Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I hope that you enjoy it number three is when you think about success who comes to mind and why um like who, what person do I think is and, successful and you know what I want to I want to modify that because I, I really want to see what comes to mind and why okay. when you think about success it's funny because when you first asked me like when you think about success what comes to mind and immediately like my family like my kids and my husband my extended family like came to my mind because I was like to me that success is having that family that support system like the whole reason I do what I do and I give up what I give up is for them. And so for me, you know, just ha having my kids and my family happy and healthy is, that's the epitome of success for me. As far as what comes to mind, it's time. It's being able to control your own time, not going to work because you need a dollar, not being a slave to your nine to five. It's being able to control your time and live life just completely on your terms and however you want to live it. I love that answer. And uh, I even want to, you know, add on to that, Vina, because you said time and being able to spend time with the loved ones and doing what you enjoy most. And I think it's interesting that most times us, when we think about adulting and responsibility, we think and have this understanding that to be a responsible adult, you have to, you know, sacrifice and work the job that you hate, you know, just to pay bills. And it really sounds like a responsible adult will, you know, make it happen to do what they love while still being able to provide the life that they want to live. Um, and that's having that time, that time freedom yeah. that we all <laughs> wish to have that's, and want to have. That's all it's about. And, you know, and I will say too, it, 
I, if I had to work a job, I hated to put food on the table and like provide for my kids. I would, there's no question in my mind. That's very respectable. It's just, I want something more out of life. And I, you, I, no one will ever outwork me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like a, um, it's a pit stop, right? It's not the, it's not the last stop. (laughs) Stepping stone. That's all. Exactly. Number four, what book belongs on everyone's bookshelf? Oh, this is good. Okay. And and I'm somebody who, uh, I don't read like a whole lot of real estate books and everyone expects me to be like, oh, this real estate book. But I'll tell you, um, I love the Malcolm Gladwell books. I've been reading um, Outliers. I've read it like four times in the last three years. I've read it over and over and over again, because I think it's just a phenomenal book to show you the power of like numbers and and I'm an I'm a nerd about numbers so I really enjoy these types of like stories and stuff so that's a book I think is really good I think everybody should have the millionaire next door I know there's an updated one I have not read it yet but um it is actually the first financial book I read that gave me like my parents made me read when I was like 14 and it was so boring but uh, it served me well in life because it really gave me a financial foundation and an understanding about money at a really young age um, and then real estate wise, um, I think what it takes by the founder of Blackstone, uh, I'm looking at it cause right here on my bookshelf, Stephen Schwartzman, uh, is a really great read cause it talks about like how he started the company and kind of everything that he went through. And so I think that's also another really great read. Mm, I've heard of outliers. I did not hear of millionaire, the millionaire next door. Oh yeah. So you, you just it. gave me one that I'm going to check out and add to my audible account. And it's like such a quick read, but there's a new one now called, it's either called the new millionaire next door or the next millionaire next door. And mm. it's actually a collaboration. I think his daughter wrote it. Um, so I think I want to read both. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> check it. I haven't read the new one yet, but it's on my list. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Vina. And um, we have number five, the last question on our rapid fire round. What is the favorite? What's your favorite thing that you bought yourself this year? Oh, these are like, these are supposed to be easy questions, but they, you know, I'm trying to think, cause I don't really buy a lot of like material things necessarily. I really focus on experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, can I have bought myself a vacation? That okay. counts. Okay. We went on like this big family vacation in May. Um, like my kids, my husband, my in-laws, my parents, Uh, my brother-in-law, our au pair, and it was just, it was so much fun. Um, And I like cruising because it's like, usually there's like a period of time where I don't get great reception. So I can't really be working. So I get to actually disconnect, but we went on like a week long cruise. You know, we hadn't gone anywhere on vacation since COVID and I was very happy about it. And it was exciting. My kids loved it. Everyone had a great time. Yeah. That sounds much needed. It was this May. Uh, yeah, just like a few months ago. Yeah, and COVID started back in 2020. So you're talking about two years. It sounds like it was very much needed. Yes, yes. It was where did, where did you guys cruise to? Um, so we went to Jamaica, the Cayman Islands, and Mexico. Mm, that sounds so, like amazing. Nice it was tropical it was, weather. Oh, <laughs> amazing. It was awesome. 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 Well, I'm glad, so glad to hear that, Vina. We are wrapping things up and I just got a couple more questions for you before I let you skate on out of here. And uh, this one is more of, uh, I'm not sure if you ever seen the matrix with the red pill, blue pill that Neil had to take. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm so, like I'm old enough that The Matrix was out when I was like a kid. <laughs> it may not have been something that was interesting though, too. I, I know, okay. like, not well, everybody likes that sci-fi type of stuff. Yeah, but like when it came out, it was like such a big deal. It didn't matter if you were into it or not. Like everybody watched it. You're right about that. You're right about that. <laughs> so what I want, what I want you to do, Vina, is I want you to be Morpheus, and I want you to give us a red pill, blue pill scenario that our millionaires are going to vote on taking once this episode releases okay hmm. okay you should, I feel like I should have like had time to prepare for this question okay and I'm gonna see if I can make it multifamily oriented so is it like an it's an investment question it could be uh so I had one guest who uh hers was uh specifically geared towards the lady ladies it was you sh- you choose to have a partner that you know, provides for you financially, but doesn't really treat you the best. And then on the blue pill, someone who treats you amazing, you know, feeds your emotional needs, but uh, cannot provide for you financially. That was an example of hers. Oh, and we, we weren't one. really talking about, we weren't really talking about that. It was just, no, it can be whatever you want. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to make it multifamily or investing related. Okay. I'll make it a question. This is actually, there's not really a right or wrong answer. It's more um, who you are as an investor. And if you don't know your answer to this will actually help you determine it. Right. So there's debt and equity that you can invest into one or the other, or both sometimes, but debt and equity. So in debt, you're investing not into the property. You own the right to lean and cloud title. You own the mortgage against the property. And it's usually a lower risk, but a lower return. So maybe you invest in debt and you get 6% or 7% annualized returns, or you invest into equity where you actually have ownership in the asset, but you take more risk because if the value drops, your equity could lose value. But in return for that amount of risk, you can get in multifamily today, you can get, you know, let's say 15% return. So are you a debt investor where you want a six to 7% return steady with like no or very low risk, or are you an equity investor where you want the high return and higher risk? And so 6% or 15% with the risk? Mm, like that question. So we'll make the 6%, the debt investment, uh, okay. the red pill, and then we'll make that equity investment, the blue pill. Okay. Which one are awesome. you taking? I think I'm going to take the blue pill, the equity investment. Yeah. Uh, just because I know with big risk come big returns. So mm-hmm. I don't really like the the waiting game of steady, steady, steady. And there's nothing I can do to increase or, mm-hmm. you know, get better. So I'm going to take the risk. That's just okay. me personally. What about can you? Can you take like half of each pill? Ah, <laughs> no, you can't take half of each pill. That would be very dangerous if we were. Uh, <laughs> oh, so I don't know what happens. <laughs> yeah, I would. I wouldn't advise anyone to mix pills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not medical advice. <laughs> All right. Uh, Vita, so let's say uh, while you were on your cruise in May, you actually um, stumbled across a spitting image of 18-year-old you. What would be oh. some advice you would give 18-year-old Vina? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I like to live dangerously. So I like to say, like, go big or go bigger. Um, 18-year-old Vina was actually still in college. I was two years away from graduating. And I would say, I wish I had started 
in business. I wish I had started a business when I was in college and it was a lot harder than it is today. Now there's just way more tools and way more access to information and products. And I wish I would have started a business back then, even if it was going to just generate a little bit of passive income, I think it would have been nice to have had that business footing. And, you know, there was no excuse for me not to, except I was obviously too lazy to do it, but I wish I would have put in the time and effort. Somebody once told me, front and load your sacrifice. And it's stayed with me for so, so long. Um, it's something I use every day, even now. And so I think, you know, I would tell 18 year old me that, and I would have started a business then. Awesome. Uh, I love that advice. I love that advice. Well, Vina, I know that we, you have a, a, a busy schedule. I want to respect your time. And before I let you get out of here, I just want to give you an opportunity to plug yourself in and tell our millionaires a little bit more where they can find you any mm -hmm. projects you have coming up. I just want you to, you know, be able to share that. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. I'm Vina Jetty. You can find me on social media. It's just Vina Jetty, super creative. I know. Um, I will say too, that Instagram, like I've been getting a lot of these fake accounts recently. So I will never ask you to send me cryptocurrency or anything like that. If you connect with me on social media, um, all of our investments and everything are done through our website, www.fivefunds.com. It is a secure portal. Um, and, you know, if you ever have questions and this is just good advice just in general, but if you, if someone's asking you to send them money like that, make sure you verify it with a person. Don't just blindly send them money because we don't do that. Like that's not how we operate our business. <laughs> Yeah, it, it costs to be the boss. And once you start doing, you know, amazing things on social media, the fake accounts start to come. <laughs> so I, no, no one ever did that to me before. And then all of a sudden, it's like every day, like two, three a day. And I, I can't get rid of them fast enough. Yeah, it, it, and that's unfortunately just where we are right now with social media and the direction it's going. It's just nothing we can do about it. Yeah, yeah it's frustrating. frustrating. So but that's great advice, Vina. It was amazing to have you on the show. I know our millionaires are going to get a lot of gems, a lot of game, a lot of insight about what you do, about real estate, the direction we're going in. So again, I just want to say thank you for your time, spending your you know Thursday afternoon with me and with our millionaires. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your night. And to our millionaires, I want to say thank you as well for joining us week in, week out. You all are the reason we're able to get guests like Vina on the show and have me, you know, have a better understanding on what you're looking for and the conversations you want to have. So with that being the case, I'm your guy, Kai Speaks. You just heard from Vina Jetty on multifamily real estate, collaboration, and funding. Just remember to keep focus, build momentum, and drive results so you can live abundantly. Peace.